energy efficiency is considered the first priority of the sustainable global energy system by the International Energy Agency and is an essential pillar of any emissions reductions target. Not only this, but there is a substantial incentive to invest in energy efficiency since it can reduce costs. Indeed, many energy efficiency measures have a negative carbon abatement cost, meaning they both reduce carbon emissions and produce a positive rate of return for investors. Despite this, there is often underinvestment in energy efficiency and a number of organizations such as the United Nations are trying to figure out ways to help the private sector reduce transaction costs and invest more in energy efficiency. Today, we are talking with Martin Schoenberg, an energy efficiency project coordinator at the United Nations Environment Programme Finance Initiative. We discuss what the UN is doing to help energy efficiency, what the largest opportunities are, and how energy efficiency is necessary to sustain both high standards of living and meet climate goals. This is the Sciencespo Energy Podcast. Martin, welcome to the Sciencespo Energy Podcast. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your work, particularly what you are trying to achieve at the United Nations? I work for a UN Environment Finance Initiative, which is a partnership between the UN and uh, 230 major financial institutions across banking, investment and insurance. My main remit is energy efficiency finance. So I work with financial institutions in scaling up their involvement, for example, with real estate, but also with other types of assets which are in need of energy efficiency upgrades. And I do that at the level of the European Union as well as the G20. Many people have called energy efficiency the fifth fuel. In fact, most famously, Daniel Jürgen did this in his book, uh, The Quest. How much potential does it have? And do you think it's really worthy of the name, the fifth fuel? I think it's more than that. I think it should really be considered the first fuel. So when we're dealing with in the energy sector now, we have a shift from energy just as a commodity to energy as a service. And the consumer actually doesn't mind if you're producing the same service with less energy. They would probably appreciate that because the energy costs would go down. And we also know that the most economically optimal pathway to the realization of the Paris Agreement is actually one which puts energy efficiency first. So I would say that energy efficiency should at least be the first fuel. Which sectors do you think are the, the easiest to improve? Let's say between transport, buildings, industry and uh, whatever else you think. I think they're all difficult actually. We have made uh, in advanced economies especially, we have made a lot of progress in terms of appliances, in terms of building standards. So there's a minimum threshold which each building now needs to fulfill. That's also coming into force in a lot of the emerging economies. However, I would say that the most tricky sector, if we phrase that inversely, so the most tricky sector is probably the real estate sector. And it's also the most important because it has the highest untapped potential. So for that reason, I think the renovation of existing buildings in advanced economies, as well as making sure that buildings in emerging economies where we have a lot of new construction are actually to the highest possible energy efficiency standard is the critical challenge. I see. And at the moment we are recording this in, in Paris, in the Sciences Po University campus, in a beautiful 18th century building. Can we still build buildings like this that are energy efficient? Of course. Of course, the buildings of the future will not look like this building. They will not look like a building from the 18th century where we can preserve 
the building stock that we have uh, by uh, upgrading it to quite significant energy efficiency levels. So deep refurbishments are possible also in listed buildings, for example. They might be a bit more expensive, but it's definitely possible to do. But the buildings of the future will look different because there's progress. And that progress will mean that we now understand much more about how to create an efficient building which is attractive to live in. And that means also that we have to look at buildings, not only each individual building, but also the way, and that's something that Paris is pioneering as well, and has been pioneering for a long time, is actually the, the connection between buildings and how they fit into a neighborhood. That's actually some of the key issues that Paris, I think, is a very good example for. So talking about transport, a lot of people are talking about electric vehicles. And of course, electric vehicles now more than ever seem to be commercially viable and people are actually buying them. In fact, projections for the uptake of electric vehicles, some of the more optimistic ones say that there'll be um, you know, many millions of electric vehicles on the road in, in a few years' time. So do you think that electric cars are really much more efficient from a, a cradle-to-grave approach? Well, they are improving a lot. So batteries technologies are improving in terms of costs, but also in terms of efficiency. So we are now approaching a threshold where electric mobility will actually be, especially if it's smart mobility and it also provides system services. So it acts as a storage facility for renewable energy, intermittent renewable energy. If all that is taken into account, there's an overwhelmingly positive impact on the environment. Compared to uh, compared to to combustion engine cars, um, so I'm very encouraged by those trends, which are showing that that electric vehicles are picking up quicker than we expected, and that's a trend of disruption that we're seeing across the energy sector. It's, it actually reflects also the trend that we saw with the see, still see with the cost reductions of renewables. Um, so generally, I think we can see the technological progress in this area is now really picking up and also causing shifts in the corporate strategy of major corporates. We just had a large German car manufacturer today, for example, announce that they're going net zero. They're going to zero emissions, which I think is a very encouraging step to take. Interesting. But do you think, though, there might be a problem in as much as electric cars have a very energy-intensive manufacturing process? So do you think that the net energy gains from using electric cars are not as significant as you might have thought originally. And we are trying to reduce emissions here, right? So as long as the electricity system evolves with the, the electrification of transport, so as long as greenhouse gas emissions decrease because there is cleaner electricity on the grid and mobility as a service doesn't really require that much CO2 emissions anymore because it's electrified, then I think we have an overwhelmingly positive impact on the environment. That's very positive, I suppose. I often hear that there is an energy efficiency investment gap. There are opportunities to invest in efficiency which have great returns, and yet people don't necessarily take them. How large are these opportunities, and why don't people take them? So the precise scale of the energy efficiency investment gap depends on the overall pathway that you're taking to the realization of the Paris Agreement. So that essentially means it also depends on how much renewable energy you're adding to the grid, how quickly you're decarbonizing your electricity generation, how far you're electrifying transport. But we, what we do know is that energy efficiency for most cost-optimal pathways needs to be scaled up by a significant factor. Most say it's a factor of six. So we're talking about a scale-up from total new investment every year of roughly 230 billion into energy efficiency 
to over a trillion into energy efficiency. But the whole, the overall potential of energy efficiency is even much larger than that. So we're really talking about a huge opportunity. If that is the case, then why is this not solved by the private market? Why are private individuals and investors not investing by themselves in energy efficiency? So energy efficiency is tricky. It's trickier than I think it's, this is best illustrated by a comparison with renewable energy. So renewable energy is normally done by financial institutions via standardized project finance approach. That means that we have dedicated teams within each financial institution that can do those transactions, that is specialist in those transactions. Energy efficiency is spread across asset classes. So it concerns industry, it concerns real estate, it concerns transport, as we, as we just discussed. And for each of those transactions, a tailor-made approach needs to be adapted. So that means that there's actually no one-size-fits-all solution compared to renewable energy, which is fairly standardized. So, and the second element is that energy efficiency does happen, but it does often happen as part of overall mortgage transactions, for example. So it's often integrated into other transactions, and therefore it is, not hi it is hidden, it is not visible to financial institutions. So those institutions don't actually know the scale of their involvement with energy efficiency because they haven't identified the energy efficiency components yet. Mm. You, you mentioned before that uh, transaction costs are a significant barrier for uh, investing in energy efficiency. Do you want to explain a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So it's the transaction cost which relates to the, to the ticket sizes. Ticket sizes are smaller, but at the same time, you have to get the same documentation for, for example, a credit line from a bank than you would have to do for slightly larger transactions. So that means that it's as expensive for financial institutions to finance a energy efficiency transaction as it is to finance a larger comparable transaction that increases normally the interest rate. And this also links to the fact that we have a high degree of perceived risk. So there's a need for technical de-risking. Financial institutions understand finance, of course, but they don't understand the technical detail of an energy efficiency improvement. So they don't, for example, know the energy performance of, of a building renovation, the energy performance improvement of a building renovation or of a new set of appliances for small and medium-sized enterprises. They don't know yet, they can't assess to which extent the promises by the technology providers will actually be accurate. And for that reason, there's a database in the European Union, which has over 10,000 projects. And those 10,000 projects cover buildings and industry, and they provide you with that benchmarking data so that as a financial institution, you understand which energy performance should be achievable for each transaction. Whilst we're on the subject of financial institutions, I've seen a lot of private financial institutions who have so-called green investment policies. Do you think this is a marketing ploy or is it something real? No, definitely. It's a material concern. So I think investors and banks understand that from a macroeconomic perspective, the consequences of climate change will, would be so severe that, that the financial system would be stretched and potentially there could be various risks along their journey as well. So there are risks in terms of disruptive innovation, which can create upheaval in financial markets despite its long-term beneficial impact. Uh, and there are, of course, also huge risks from, as we understand from the insurers, from the impacts of climate change. 
And that means that financial institutions are deeply involved with this and they're often going further than what policymakers are doing. So financial institutions are really leading financial institutions are really able to take charge and create those new markets. So I think this is a material concern, as you can also see by the numbers of supporters of the global investor statements on climate change, which now have well over 500 institutions supporting them, which is also something you can see by the involvement of financial institutions with the sustainable finance discussion, which has a huge level of interest from financial institutions. And actually, if you look at investors, they're very well placed to be because they look at the whole of the economy so they can trade off some disadvantages in uh, in transitioning industries with the new opportunities that are created and new technologies. So, so they really understand the overall macroeconomically beneficial impact of climate action and also the need to mitigate the risks which will result from climate impacts. On the topic of risk, do you think that investing in, in energy efficiency may actually increase the risk on global financial institutions as balance sheets? And is this something that we should worry about? Not at all. It reduces risk, actually. So what we understand from from some segments, for example, of the real estate sector, is that energy efficiency improves the value in greens, green value segments, so towards the top end of the energy efficiency spectrum, and it affects the value in, in the brown segment, which is essentially the least efficient uh, real estate. And we know that regulators are going to act no matter what. So regulators are going to to regulate with building standards, which will force an upgrade of the least efficient equipment. So there's risks there, that's true, but turning away from that would be the exactly wrong response. Actually, the response would be upgrading those least, those worst rated buildings. And we also know that energy efficiency um, drives value in, in the premium segment, and there's a hypothesis that it also will in the future drive value in the middle segment of real estate. And, and that means that the value of your collateral improves. It also means that the repayment capacity of the mortgage taker improves because you said the mortgage taker saves an energy bill. And it could also be an indicator of overall credit quality. So all those factors seem to be pointing in the opposite direction, which is that energy efficiency improves rather than makes worse the risk profile. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, I want to ask one question which is perhaps a little different from what we were discussing, but um, uh, we often hear that moves towards a less carbon-intensive economy should be accompanied by proper compensation to those who, who lose out, or for example, they lose their work. Why do you think this is important specifically for energy transition? So for the energy transition, it's important that all, all, all segments in society are on board with this transition. I think that a, a consensual approach is always the most promising. Uh, we also know that this is somewhat different because quite a few of the industries which are at a disadvantage because of the transition can actually not transition themselves that easily. You, might, you, will, you are well able to to transition if you're an industry which can catch up with the new technologies. But for example, if you're a coal miner, I mean, it is very difficult for a coal miner to be transitioning into a new role. It's definitely possible, but government support needs to be provided for that. And I think it is very important that not only, we, of course, we talk about the just transition, 
Um, but we also talk about predictability of policy frameworks, and that's why setting each country setting a strategy for 2050 is a very important element because then everybody knows where we're heading. So then there's no excuse if you're heading in the wrong direction, you're not aligning with the Paris Agreement. You know that you're acting against policy rather than in favor of policy. And I think based on that, there would be no grounds for compensation. But if it's new policies which are coming into effect, then when you started entering an industry you were not aware or didn't consider this material enough, that might be a slightly different situation. Mm. Do you think that in the in the West, particularly in the G20, I suppose, since that is your field of expertise, that it's possible to reduce energy consumption to a level which is somewhat carbon neutral while still maintaining or increasing our standard of living. Of course, I mean, energy efficiency improves the standard of living. So it doesn't only improve GDP. So we know that uh, every year we, we have about a trillion adits to global GDP because of energy efficiency, which is a significant number. I mean, that's size of some national economies. Sure. Would you expand on a, a bit more about how that's calculated? It's actually calculated by the IEA. It's a comparison between the level of the notional level of GDP, so the level of GDP where it would have been without energy efficiency, and then the actual GDP level. So it's a comparison. It's called the energy productivity bonus. One criticism in the idea that we're becoming much more energy efficient in the West is that we are actually importing this energy by importing goods which are very energy intensive. Do you think this is a legitimate criticism? So it's not only advanced economies which are improving their energy efficiency. If you look at global rates of energy intensity, you can see that this is actually a global trend. So the global level of energy intensity has been improving rapidly. And also the rate at which this is improving has been accelerating. So this is not only a phenomenon of the advanced economies because we've shifted with trade patterns, we have shifted some of our production to emerging economies and developing countries. It is actually because we have significant advances also in emerging and developing countries. So this is definitely a global trend. I've been recently to a number of discussions about uh, carbon abatement and carbon capture and storage. And it occurred to me whilst listening to your presentation that energy efficiency is, of course, a way of carbon abatement. It's a way of preventing carbon that would have been released into the atmosphere from being released into the atmosphere. Do you want to explain to me a bit more about how this compares as a tool to carbon capture and storage or use of renewables, for example? I don't think you can just compare them like that. You have to look at the whole, the whole energy system and you have to look at the effectiveness and efficiency of the overall system. So that means that you have to look at the optimal contribution that renewables can make. You have to look at the way in which uh, grid expansion, for example, is working and grids are being upgraded in order to accommodate renewable energy and how smart the energy system is overall. And then energy efficiency, of course, is one of the cheapest ways and the most cost-effective ways of achieving those emissions. But it is also actually where most of the investment gap resides. So when you look at the EU's high-level expert group on sustainable finance has said, they have stated that 60% of the gap to realize Europe's 2030 climate energy targets, which are quite ambitious, actually is the renovation of existing buildings, 60%. 
So we really know that we need to accelerate our investments in, into energy efficiency and that without the contribution of energy efficiency would probably not be able to realize the Paris Agreement. What are the 2030 ambitions exactly? It's a 40% reduction of uh, greenhouse gas emissions and then it's around 30% uh, improvements in renewable energy and energy efficiency. And then by 2050? And net zero. Net zero. What do you think the challenges are for net zero? For net zero, we have to... So what the European Commission is planning is that uh, energy consumption, even though GDP will be probably doubling by then, energy consumption should be reduced by 50%. So we're talking about a really drastic improvement in energy intensity of the European Union. But of course, also we need to deploy much more renewable energy, including offshore wind, as well as onshore and solar. We need to electrify transport. We need to work on agricultural emissions. So there's a whole range of policy measures which are necessary, and those need to be done in a cross-cutting way. Very interesting. We, we've talked a lot about the G20. However, of course, improving energy efficiency is also important in developing countries. In what ways should the approach be different in developing countries versus developed countries? I think we're really talking about a range of countries here. So we're not only talking about a comparison of developed versus developing countries. There's nuances and more than nuances. There's stark differences often between within developing countries and between developing countries. So I think what is important from an energy efficiency finance point of view is the state of development of the financial system in a country. For example, in Europe, we have an approach now where we are deploying energy efficient mortgages as a key way of improving energy efficiency. Now, if in a developing country you have really high interest rates and you don't have an advanced mortgage market, you, have a very, you need to take a much more tailored and country specific approach. And that often involves the development banks. So the development banks are a key factor, even more important in developing countries, in scaling up energy efficiency, not only by, ta by providing affordable capital, but also by bringing in private financial institutions in order to be able to invest in those economies as well. Can you give some examples of some success cases for energy efficiency finance? So the advanced economies, you see most progress on energy efficiency finance when you have a strong link with financial regulation. So when there's a key driver for private financial institutions which, which links with their core business activities. And that financial regulation angle is proving very successful in scaling up involvement of private financial institutions in Europe, for example, but there are also efforts underway, for example, in China. China is now develop has developed a sustainable finance taxonomy already, and I'm very encouraged by ongoing collaboration between China and the EU with regards to that. And there's also, of course, key developments, for example, in the US, where green mortgages are quite a widely spread product already. So you can see that financial regulation is a key driver of progress on this topic. Green mortgage is something that's sold to consumers? So a green mortgage as it's, or an energy efficient mortgage is a new financial product, which essentially provides you with a top up to your regular mortgage. So when you take out a new mortgage, the bank offers you a, a larger mortgage and in exchange they reduce the interest rate potentially because they understand that an energy efficient customer is a better credit risk. Sure, so this could effectively save both banks money and the borrower money. Exactly, yeah. It's okay. a very interesting proposition.
Fantastic. And, and you said this was something which was happening in the United States. And in Europe. So green mortgages have been, I think, uh, pioneered or spearheaded in the US. Um, but there's now a group of uh, 40 large European banks which are working jointly uh, on deploying energy efficient mortgages in Europe as well. There are a lot of people in Sciences Po who would probably like to work in the United Nations. So what advice would you have for them? As you're aware, the UN has a lot of uh, specialized agencies who work on specific uh, topic areas. So if you have expertise in a specific topic area like climate and energy or whatever other field you're interested in, or if you have strong regional expertise, I think these are two factors which are key uh, attractions uh, as one is of course having a good understanding of the world uh, which are important and which are key uh, success factors in the recruitment process. Okay awesome well Martin I thank you very much for coming on the podcast thank and, you um, hopefully we'll, we'll do another one sometime. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to the Science Po Energy Podcast recorded and produced in Paris by Paul David Evans with help from Sirvash Barhoda. If you like the podcast, then feel free to leave a rating on iTunes or whatever you are listening. And if you're an undergraduate student and you're interested in energy, then have a look at the program offered by Sciences Po.